beginning at verse 1. And actually reading through verse 10. John 10, 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's word, this account of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you uh, that you've acted in history but thank you that you've kept a record of what you've done in history. And you've done it because you love your people. And you want your people to know the truth, to be encouraged and comforted by the truth. But beyond that, O oh Lord, to be changed by the truth so that we marvel and are amazed, staggered and stunned by what it is that you've done for us in Jesus so that we might serve you in this world and forever. Lord, to grant us your spirit, um, teach us things, uh, and do through this passage and, and really through reflecting upon what you've done for us in Jesus and specifically the resurrection, give us great and deep and com wonderful comfort and hope, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I have a book a title that I want to recommend to you. Some of you have, uh, have heard this book recommended before. Um, in fact, we used it um, about a year and a half ago, kind of as a, a text, if you will, for a series of uh, Sunday evening messages that we did, really trying to tell the whole story, the story of the whole Bible. This book is called Far As the Curse is Found. It's by Michael Williams. And, um, and it really does do that. It's, you know, it's not uh, the most eloquent thing that uh, you'll ever read. It's not uh, probably the most, uh, it's certainly not novel in one sense. I mean, it's not a novel. It's really seeking to deal with the truth. But it's really a very, very helpful book. And it does tell the story that unfolds throughout the scriptures. Uh, which is where we're going to end up camping this morning. So I just mentioned this to you, but he begins this book in the preface by referring to a conversation that C.S. Lewis had with Walter Hooper. Uh, and this little bit of the uh, conversation went like this. One day he and I, that is Hooper and Lewis, were speculating as to what would happen if a group of friendly and inquisitive Martians 
suddenly appeared in the middle of Oxford and asked what Christianity is. What is it? We wondered how many people, apart from voicing their prejudices about the church, could supply them with much in the way of accurate information. On the whole, we doubted whether the Martians would take back to their world much that is worth having. You know, if, if somebody walks up to you on the street and says, what is Christianity about? What would you say? What would you say? Uh, to ask it a little bit differently, if they asked you, what is the Bible about? What would you say? Well, you know, there are lots of answers that you can give to the, to the question, what is Christianity about? I mean, you know, honestly, folks, at bottom, Christianity, or at top, or kind of all through it, it's about hope. It's really about hope. I mean, it's not about this sort of wistful hopefulness that people seem to have, you know, that somehow everything is going to work out okay in the end. No, no, no. It's a hope that's grounded in some real stuff. Uh, and the hope that is grounded in some real stuff, the real stuff is what, what Christianity is about and what the Bible is about. And if I could sort of take a page from Michael Williams' book, I would just tell you that the drama of the Bible basically is this. The, the unfolding story of the Bible is basically this. Something wonderful happened. Something went tragically wrong. And most of the Bible is about how what went wrong is being made right. Most of the Bible is about how what went wrong is being made right. All leading to a great and glorious and happy ending and resolution. Now, folks who have been hanging around here for a little while and, and maybe have heard me talk about this may recognize these four great scenes on the panel, if you will, that tells the story of the Bible, the four uh, great acts that get unfolded across the pages of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's one story, 66 books, lots of different authors across all kinds of centuries and millennia. But that's basically it, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And the main character of the story is the triune God of heaven and earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who was really there, who really, you can start to say this with me now because you've heard me say it so many times, the God who is really at home in his universe, who really sees, who really cares, and cares so much that he's going to do something about what is wrong. That's what we've been hearing from the minor prophets for all these weeks and months. <laughs> Who's the main character? And what is at the center of all of this? Well, what is at the center of all of this, meaning... The whole story of the Bible, the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation with the triune God as the main character in the unfolding story, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is at the center of it is, it the, is the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and particularly this series of events that transpires over four days. Four days. At the center of the story involving the main character, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, 
his betrayal, death, burial, and then his resurrection. Four days, four days at the center of all of human history, at the center of the story. Now, none of this stuff that happens at this particular point in time, these four days, exists in isolation. Yeah, i got to keep that in mind. It doesn't exist in isolation. The resurrection is not a freak occurrence, a one-of-a-kind kind of a freak occurrence that occurs that, that people were fascinated by and that Gospels were written to record. It's not like something weird happens in history. No, understand, history is the stage upon which this whole drama gets played out beginning with creation, leading to fall, redemption, and then consummation, what is at the center of history, not some special history within the real history, what is at the center of history is the stuff that we're talking about this morning, the stuff that we're celebrating today. That is what all of human history is about, centering on one purpose, Jesus, God incarnate, and four days, a Thursday through a Sunday, a Last Supper and then betrayal, an arraignment, a trial, a sentencing, an executing of that sentence and an executing of the criminal, Saturday in the grave. I don't know what Saturday of Easter week is like for you. I find Saturday of Easter week to be haunting. Haunting. Saturday in the grave followed by the Sunday resurrection. Now, what do we make of all of this? Well, in the first place, let me just say really quickly that you have to deal with the fact, you've got to come to terms with the fact of the resurrection. You've got to come to terms with the fact that all four Gospels record the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got to come to terms with the fact that the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, put in a grave, that body, recognized by disciples, hundreds of people, in the 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension, another visible event, something you would have seen if you'd been there, something you could have taken pictures of if there had been cameras. That's what Francis Schaeffer used to love to say. If you'd been there, you could have taken a picture of this stuff. The resurrection stands at the center of all of this, in the Gospels, in the letters, in the preaching of the Apostle Paul, in the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. It's at the center of the Revelation. The Revelation, you remember, we talked about it several months ago, just in a cursory sort of way, describes two environments, the heavenly environment and the earthly environment. And the really important thing is what's going on in the heavenly environment, where the one who was slain is now risen and ascended and seated in a throne of glory doesn't matter where you go in the Bible, this thing is there. Now, I really don't like to pick fights. I'm a peaceful person. But every once in a while, you run across something that is frankly so disturbing and so heartbreaking that you've got to pause and you've got to make a comment I read a piece recently, maybe you read it too, and I'm telling you folks, I'm not here to pick a fight. William Wallace went out to pick a fight. I'm not here to pick a fight. 
read a piece recently which raised the question of what Easter is about. And by the way, I don't really like to use Easter. I mean, it's okay. But this is not about bunny rabbits and Easter eggs. This is about a body that came out of a grave. This is Resurrection Day. This is the Lord's Day supremely. But still, there's the question. What is Easter about? And the piece went on to talk about the fact that Winston Spencer Churchill believed in eternal life and that at his funeral, he had taps played at the beginning of the funeral and reveille played at the end of the funeral. That Easter is not about an end, but it is about a beginning. In the course of this piece that I read, not one word was said about Jesus Christ, dead in a tomb, raised in power and glory, securing a real eternal life for those who trust in him. I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm just here to say that while it's wonderful that Winston Spencer Churchill believed in eternal life, Bertrand Russell didn't. And as far as I know, both Winston Spencer Churchill and Bertrand Russell are in their respective graves. And what we affirm on this day is not that somebody believed in eternal life and so that we can be hopeful about eternal life. What we say on this Easter day is that God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, in the mystery of how that works and in the mystery of God's unfolding purpose, was put to death, put in a tomb, and came out of that tomb in power and glory. And that is my hope and the hope of every person who believes that there is real eternal life. I mean, if it's just Winston Spencer Churchill's opinion as over against Bertrand Russell's opinion... Who can know? But Jesus came out of the grave. Again, the resurrection doesn't stand as a unique, odd event in history, a peculiarity. But it is a real thing that imparts real hope, real hope to people who believe and trust and cling to and latch on to the Jesus who went into the grave, was buried, came out of the grave, is resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. Anybody who clings to him, lays hold of him, has the hope that he died and was raised again to give. Now, what's the significance of this? I asked, what do we make of all of the first thing? is that you have to come to terms with the fact of the resurrection, it seems to me. Now, second, what's the significance of it? Well, let me give you some things really quickly. What's the significance of this day? I mean, it's a significant thing that somebody was dead, buried, and is alive again. Never happened before in this sense. Dead, buried, alive, never to die again. Lazarus was dead, buried, came back to life. Poor fella had to die again. The son of the widow at Nain, dead, buried, alive again. 
had to die again. There's only one who has gone into the grave, come out of the grave, never to die again, and that is Jesus, and that's a significant thing. But what is the significance of it? How do we look at this resurrection? How do we think of it? Here are three things. The first of them is this. The resurrection portrays a great and greater deliverance. A great and greater deliverance. I've been thinking for two weeks now. I alluded to this last week. I've been thinking for two weeks now about Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration as recorded in Luke's gospel. As recorded in Luke's gospel. Because it's in Luke's gospel, Luke makes this notation that the conversation which Jesus was having with Moses and Elijah was about, if you have the old King James, about his decease, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. What's a decease? It's a death. The more modern translations translate the word departure. They were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But in the original, in the text of the Greek, the original language, the word is exodus. His ex-hodos, his road out, the road out. Now you think of exodus. What do you think of? Look, the Spirit of God knew what he was doing when he inspired the Scriptures, when he inspired Luke to use that particular word in the text of Scripture. For people who knew Greek and spoke Greek, knowing that there were Hebrew people all over the Mediterranean basin whose familiarity with the Old Testament came to them through the LXX. If you've ever seen that in the margins of your Bibles, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Why use Exodus? Why use that word? Because what Jesus came to do is accomplish the greater Exodus. Pave a greater pathway out. Think for just a couple of minutes about Moses. Moses has to come to mind when you hear the word Exodus. What did he do? What did he do? He went to Egypt. For whom did he go to Egypt? I love this. He went to Egypt for a people whom God loved. He went to Egypt for a people whom God, in the mysteries of his mercy and kindness, the unfathomable riches of his compassion, he went for a people whom he had chosen, a people whom he'd love, a chosen people whom he would redeem out of their bondage. Moses went, anointed by God, with power, performing miracles. The hand of God was upon him. And Moses, I love this, Moses, who went to Egypt alone, didn't leave Egypt alone. When he went out, he went out with a people. Who's the greater Moses? You see, you've got to remember this is one story. It's not like, as I said last week, it's not like that Old Testament stuff was a kind of a plan A that failed. You know, historically, the interpreters have looked at Luke chapter 9 and they see Moses and they see Elijah 
together with Jesus and they say, well, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so they're talking to Jesus who is the fulfillment of both. And that's certainly true. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that stuff. But, you know, I really think that text is pointing to this greater thing. That he, Jesus, is the greater Moses. Who, when he comes into the world, comes alone. Is born in isolation. Is born in the midst of deprivation. But who comes with all of the authority and power and wisdom of God and who at his baptism is anointed with power to what end and purpose? To be a deliverer. To be a deliverer for whom? To be a deliverer for a people whom the Father had loved. Whom the Father in the mysteries of his compassion and kindness and mercy had chosen And a people who would be redeemed from their horrible bondage in sin and death. Delivered out of that bondage by the greater Moses. What's the greater exodus? It's the greater Moses coming into the world to accomplish a greater deliverance. And then you think about Elijah. You can read about this in 2 Kings 2. You can check my facts, okay? You think, Elisha, why Elisha? Well, think about it. Moses is the one who comes as the great redeemer and deliverer. Elisha never died. You remember the story of Elisha, how when he's going to transfer power to Elisha, his successor, Elisha never dies. He crosses the Jordan The glory cloud comes down to pick him up, gathers him up into the glory cloud, and Elijah disappears from Elisha's view. That sounds an awful lot to me like the ascension. Like what happened the day when the disciples, just like Elisha, a disciple of Elijah, when the disciples who had met with Jesus over 40 days, met with him on the Mount of Olives, and a cloud comes down out of the heavens... And gathers him up. And folks, it's no ordinary cloud. If you follow the theme of the cloud through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, this is a peculiar and unique and significant cloud. It's the glory cloud. It's the cloud where the presence of God dwells. It's a cloud to veil the presence of the glory of God from those who behold it. Because if they see it, they'll be struck dead. And Jesus is gathered up into that cloud as the greater Elisha. Here's a striking thing about 2 Kings 2. If you go read this little narrative of Elijah's departure, Elijah, who never dies, when Elijah comes to the Jordan River. This is so cool. They cross the Jordan River to get into the promised land. You have to cross the Jordan River to get out of the promised land. But what has to happen in order for the people to cross from outside the land into the land? The waters have to be parted, right? Well, in order to depart, Elijah rolls up his cloak, slaps the water, the waters part, and he passes out of the promised land into the glory cloud and up into the presence of the eternal God, never dying. It, again, raises all of this imagery of an exodus and a deliverer and an entrance into a promised land. 
ever wonder about this New Testament language like Ephesians 2 where Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins but Christ because of the great love with which he has loved you in great mercy has made you alive together with Christ in Christ but not only have you been made alive together with Christ in Christ by Christ but he says you've ascended with Christ and you are seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father in the Father's presence did you catch this in the hymn this morning the opening hymn Forgive me while I take time to find this. I'm going to get in trouble again. I'm not here to pick a fight. But this is why I love hymns. I love the theology of them. I love the poetry of them. I love the images of them. Number 277. Lives again our glorious King. Where, O death, is now thy sting? Once he died our souls to save. Where thy victory, O grave? Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. See, they, this dude, Charles Wesley, couldn't remember that Wesley wrote it. This dude got it. This dude gets that whatever has happened to Jesus has happened to you. It's finished. It's done. Died. Buried. Raised. Ascended. Seated at the right hand of the Father. A greater exodus has occurred. And it's all embodied, imaged for us in Moses the Deliverer and Elijah the One who never dies. You, Jesus says. You, even though you die will live. You're more like Elijah. Having crossed the Jordan, attached to Jesus, raised up with your great deliverer who, like Moses, came into the world alone, but who doesn't leave alone. What is this resurrection about? It's about a greater deliverance. Where are you? How do you think of yourself? What do you imagine about yourself? I think I've told you this silly little story. It's a cartoon that I saw in Christianity today years ago. Years ago. The pastor's leaning against the pulpit. He's in a rumpled up khaki suit. He looks out at his congregation. He says, I've been preaching on the transforming power of the gospel for four weeks. Why do you look like the same old bunch? You know, you look like the same old bunch. I look like the same old guy. But folks, we've got to get our minds and our hearts around the realities that the Bible describes. This resurrection points to a greater exodus. You've been delivered. You've crossed the Jordan. Yours is the cross, the grave, and the skies. And whatever is true of Jesus is true of you, ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in the midst of great glory. Second thing, all of this suggests that the resurrection is in fact a new creation. I'd love to, I'd love to unpack this for an hour, but just, just think again about the integrity, meaning the internal coherence 
of the whole story of the Bible. There was a first Adam who was created to rule, and because of his fall, he plunged the whole of the creation into this condition where it labors under a curse. But the second Adam, the second Adam doesn't fail. And the second Adam, when he comes, passes the test repeatedly. And because he doesn't fail, he emerges from the fray. He emerges from the struggle against the devil and against evil and all the powers of hell. He emerges from the struggle against death and the grave. He emerges the new and resurrected humanity, a new creation. He's the new humanity. He is the humanity that God intended the first Adam to be. And the whole point is that this new humanity, this new creature, if you will, might rule over a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, a new garden filled with glory, filled with wonder, filled with harmonies and intricacies and beauties. Read the gospel narratives. When Jesus comes out of the grave in the gospel of John, he eats lunch with his disciples. Why does he do that? He wants his disciples to know that his body is a real but glorified body. It's the same body that went into the grave, but it comes out glorified, transformed, remarkably different. But it's a real body, real flesh, restored, never to die again, the new creation. What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 5.18. If any man is in Christ, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe I've said it to you, the way the the structure of the sentence works is this. If any man is in Christ, new creation. New creation. It's a declaration, you see. There's no personal pronoun. There's no verb. The translators substitute those things. If any man is in Christ, united to Christ, linked to Christ, laid hold of Christ, associated with Christ as the second and greater Moses who came to deliver. It's not only that you're delivered, it's that you, like him, you are made new. You're a new creation. That's that's wonderful. Right? Those of you who have been around have heard me say this. I get tired of being me. I can't wait until the newness that Christ has begun in me, is brought to completion, and all that oldness I can leave behind forever. That's the context in which to understand the old man and the new man in the letters of the Apostle Paul. The new man is the new creation. The old man is the thing that's being crucified, it's being put to death, that one day, thanks be to God, is going to be gone forever. So it's not just deliverance. It's newness. It's new creation. United to Christ. Vitally sustained by His life. A life that will never end. So what is God about as this story unfolds? He is about in creating, perhaps we should say recreating, a new people. Jesus, I think it's legitimate to use this imagery. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel, is the father of a new humanity. A new humanity. And as the father and the son 
by the power of the Spirit, create this new humanity they are recreating for themselves out of the wreckage of the old, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests who will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth, offering everything in the totality of their lives across the whole of the waterfront of life forever and ever as worship and praise to the God who has redeemed them. It's a new creation. I know you doubted about yourself. I know you probably doubted about me. But it is what the Bible tells me Christ has done. He's delivered me, and he's made me new. And then the last thing. The last thing is that this is a sustaining hope. A sustaining hope. Again, this resurrection day is not a freak occurrence. It's not just a novelty that proves that Jesus was who he says he was. It's the greater exodus that leads to a new creation which imparts to the people of God a sustaining hope. May I say this? May I say this? Um, I want to say it tenderly. I want to say I'm not here to pick a fight. But if your hope is in this world, you are of all people most to be pitied. If your hope is this world, I don't say this as some kind of arrogant, self-righteous know-it-all. That's not how I say it. I say it as a pastor who is commissioned by Christ to herald the glad tidings of the gospel of the kingdom, these realities that are accomplished in his person and in his work, and to say to you, if only in this world you have hoped, you are of all people most to be pitied. There is a hope that extends outside. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've lived. I don't care how long you might live. There is something outside this world and beyond the particular chronology of your life that is there for the taking. It's there for the taking. It is in Jesus. And you take Jesus and you get what is there for the taking. The eternity of ruling and reigning in a new heaven and new earth, not in a broken down body that's going to die again, not in a corrupted world that suffers under this curse, but in something resplendent with beauty and glory and wonder, and that forever. And that's a sustaining hope, folks. I shared this passage a couple of weeks ago, um, and I'm just going to share it real quickly. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13 and following. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Christians, this morning, you'll grieve. Your hearts will break. They already have. They will break again. But you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Why is that? Listen. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. You remember 
that the angels who stood on the Mount of Olives and spoke to the disciples said, the one you see going in this way is going to come in the same way. He's going to come back just in the same way you've seen him leave. That's what Paul's talking about here. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You know what they say, don't you? Presbyterians are going to be first in line. Because the dead in Christ will rise first. No, no, he's talking about people who are in their graves, in their tombs, whose bodies, bones, sinew, tissue have degenerated and fallen apart completely incapable. He's talking about dead people being raised first, and then those who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And maybe you remember a couple of weeks ago, I suggested to you, it seems to me N.T. Wright has this right when he looks at this passage and sees in Jesus a returning military conqueror, a general who has vanquished his foes, who returns triumphant from the fray, and all of the citizens who belong to him, who live under his gracious rule and reign, go out of the city to herald his return, to receive him back. They're raised up from their graves. They're raised up from the earth. And they meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And Paul says that they will always be with the Lord. And he doesn't finish the story, but I believe the finishing of the story is that the general returns, and when he returns all the way and gets back to this earth, he so transforms it that this place becomes the place fully delivered, fully freed, fully transformed from all of its hardship, all of its brokenness, where Christ will dwell in glory, and all of those who have loved his appearing will rule and reign with him forever. The general has one the war. And that is a sustaining hope, my friends. It is a hope that this world cannot give. But Christ, dead, buried, raised again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in glory, will come as a conquering king, gather us up to himself, transform, deliver, free, redeem the whole of the heavens and the earth, and it will be yours to enjoy for all eternity. Find that hope. Find that hope anywhere in the world. You can't. It's in Jesus. Raised again from the dead. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Please encourage the hearts of your people with these things. Please, oh, Lord, stir the hearts of those hearts, hearts that need to be stirred, to see, to hear, to believe, to entrust themselves to these things. Lord, for all of us, would you go to war? Would you deal with whatever needs to be dealt with? And with the Apostle Paul, we cry out, Maranatha, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. We pray in your name. Amen. Stand with me and we'll sing our closing hymn, number 286, Worship Christ, the Risen King, 286.